Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Kurt Anderson. Kurt co-founded Fair Anderson Langerman, a CPA firm in 1988 after a 13-year career with a national accounting firm in Los Angeles, in which he was a partner and member of the firm's board of directors. Is that all accurate so far? So far. Perfect. Kurt's diverse experience over his 40-plus years, I'm going to ask you later how many exactly, 40-plus years uh, career, your 40-plus year career includes federal, multi-state, and foreign taxation, evaluation and structuring of corporate mergers and acquisitions, estate planning and tax-related matters for income, gifts, and estate taxation, and tax minimization planning for individuals and corporations. You've got a BA in business administration and accounting with an emphasis, with an accounting emphasis from, of course, University of Notre Dame. Anyone who knows you knows that, right? Uh, not always. The, the Notre Dame piece. You're a past president of Opportunity Village Foundation, ARC boards, and the current treasurer for the Police Athletic League. Welcome, Kurt. Well, good to be here. You've done a lot, man. Are doing a lot. Well, you know, there's that uh, old vaudeville saying, with an act like mine, it's best to keep moving. That's been my general theory. All right. Well, what is, I don't know what ARC board is. What is the ARC board? Uh, Well, it's no longer the ARC board. It uh, was called the ARC board, which dates back to the uh, 50s when that, when Opportunity Village was formed. And it actually Mm. said Association of Retarded Citizens. And the word retarded became very uh, negative. And so we deleted the ARC reference and just became Opportunity Village. And then we have the uh, Opportunity Village uh, Foundation. But it was kind of an updating of the of the name. Got it. So you're a past president of, of the Opportunity Village Foundation. Talk about Opportunity Village and what, what is it and what does it do? No, well, I was a past president of actually both boards. Oh, they're separate boards. They're separate boards. Got it. They're, they're two separate or, uh, organizations. One supports the other. And uh, so I was president of one, did my damage, and then they made me chairman president of the other board, and I completed my, my work to totally goof up the organization. But the uh, the uh, Opportunity Village Board is really charged with operational elements of uh, Opportunity Village operating as a business. And uh, what uh, we just opened up a new uh, line, so to speak, when we went into residential housing for people with uh, uh, intellectual handicaps. And uh, so that, that board is an operational board. The uh, Opportunity Village Foundation is charged with uh, finding money raising money for the use of Opportunity Village. So as a foundation member, my charge is to go out and uh, acquaint people with Opportunity Village, uh, try to find people who would be possible donors, uh, give them a chance to understand what it is we do and see if we can get them to consider donating. All right. Very cool. I remember coming to one of your galas yeah. and donating. Yeah. So thanks for that opportunity. We'll get you well, tell us, uh, I read your, your professional bio, and tell us in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Therein lies a really kind of an interesting 
question is you are aware since we've done those personality profiles of ourselves for what we do here at MDL when we uh, all got together uh, nine years ago and, and uh, started this process that, w that we have. Um, I like to think of myself as a guy who just helps people figure out what they want to do and how to get there um, in whatever that may entail. I've got a classic training as a CPA, which gives me um, a lot of knowledge, technical knowledge in the area of tax and audit and accounting, things of that sort, which are elements of what I need to know to be able to help people figure things out. But the, the, the reality is, and you've seen this in what we do here at, um, at MDL, um, what I do is I just sit down with people, talk with them, try to understand what their issues are, maybe find opportunities that they don't recognize themselves, or maybe they do, and they're trying to figure out what to, how to make that happen or how to avoid problems, and just... Um, start bringing my um, background and knowledge to bear to help them figure it out and find people who have the expertise that we need to come in and uh, put solutions together that, that make sense. It's kind of a simple process. <laughs> you make it sound so simple. I doubt it's, I doubt it's simple for someone who's not classically trained as a CPA. Yeah. Well, I just got, uh, I, I got really lucky as, and you've heard this spiel, so you're kind of used to it. I got very lucky um, in my career when I started out in public accounting I got a lot of opportunity given to me at an early age, gave me a lot of exposure to things at an early age, becoming a partner um, in Southern California back in the late 70s. You're starting to get a sense of my age. Uh, but I got exposed to a lot of things that I wouldn't have been exposed to in South Bend, Indiana, where I grew up. Uh, a lot of breadth and depth, um, a lot of international things. So I just, I got very, very lucky at a young age to be very, very exposed to the uh, inner workings of the uh, of a national CPA firm, uh, but also seeing how people internationally put deals together, how people nationally put things together. So it, um, I, I just, I just have a probably an, an above average level of experience, not because I'm the smartest guy around, but because I just got lucky. I was exposed to a lot. So your father, your husband, talk about Sue and talk about your two kids. Well, I um, and a grandfather, I should and say. A grandfather, yes, I'm a grandfather too, which is hard to believe since I'm 28 years old. Um, no, my wife and I, um, we got married uh, actually just after about a year after I got out of college. I had met her on a blind date of all things uh, when I was uh, in college, and uh, she's from Detroit, and uh, she got snookered into a, a party with a bunch of us come that drove up from. Uh, Notre Dame for a weekend. I, I had a friend who was from Detroit that was going to school with me. Anyway, we met on a blind date, of all things, and uh, got married about two years later. And then I've made her life a, more or less a living <laughs> hell ever since. You know, and we, uh, we were married for about five years, at which point I got my transfer to California and moved her eight and a half months pregnant with our daughter to uh, California. Just totally uprooted her life. And... Uh, then um, uh, we lived in California for about seven years. Got an opportunity to come up here, get into the real estate business, because I had determined that being a partner in a national CPA firm for the rest of my career was not what I wanted. It was too narrow and in focus. Um, not that it's a bad thing. It's just, it's just not what I wanted. Came up here, got into real estate development, and uh, 
and, and other business ventures. We had our son here, who uh, uh, was born in, in Vegas. So I moved her up to Las Vegas, uprooted her from California, moved her up here. And uh, so far, things have gone pretty well. And we just uh, celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Wow. 50 years. What did she get you for your 50th anniversary? <laughs> uh, nothing. I got a card. I got a card. We uh, had a nice trip with the family to took everybody to. I should have asked, what did you get her? But I was being funny. Yeah. No, so, well, he's like, what do you do? I got her a watch, but um, but no, it was. Um, yeah, it, it's it's what I call her um, console. The trip was what I call her consolation prize for fifty years of marriage to me. And unfortunately, it seems like most people agree with that statement. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna have to rethink that. And come up with something different. How many cars do you have? Well, <laughs> I look at it this way. I've got seven, and Sue has two. So I look at it like that. At what point did you become a car guy? You know, well, I've always been, I've always liked cars. My dad was sort of, um, he was uh, uh, intrigued by cars, and we would have these odd cars when I grew up. I learned to drive on a Citroen SM, or as um uh, no, a Citroen, a Citroen DS uh, Palais, which is a car with a hydraulic suspension, and it's very aerodynamic. And you got to remember, this was in the 60s. So I just got exposed to that, and he had a Pinard, and then he had an NSU Prince, and he had this and that, Citroen SM. He just had odd cars that you just didn't normally see. So I got intrigued by that. My brothers had the same affliction. Um, but I really didn't do much about it until um, I got up here in Vegas, and I had enough room to be able to start buying cars and keeping them someplace. So that kind of, <laughs> kind of stuck. But I, uh, at one time I was up to like 18 or 19 cars. I'm, I'm down to a, a conservative seven. It's stupid. one for every day of the week. One for every day of the week. That's, you know, that's what you got to have. Yeah. You know, so good. This show is called takeaways and it's about the takeaways from people who have influenced me and we'll get into the ways that you've influenced me, Kurt, in a major way. But Psychology I, is appropriate. Yeah, there I you get, go. I get help. Get comfortable. You know what my wife does for a living. So. I know, that's what I'm saying. You, we'll you get you in get the help. seat. <laughs> so I like to ask everybody, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, what has been the single most influential thing or event in your life that shaped you the most? Was that on the list of questions you gave me? Yes. Yeah, well, see. I looked at that two or three weeks ago. Now, I, now I've forgotten all of it because I didn't look at it again when we had to cancel. Um, the single most influential thing is probably a confluence of events that led to where I am today that was the promotion to partner and transfer to California that set in motion um, everything that's that, that I'm involved in now. That, that transfer sort of opened up a whole new um, world for me. So going from, you were in South Bend? South Bend, Indiana. Working as a people. In, this, in the town. Yep. And you're working at a national law firm, or excuse me, accounting firm. Well, it wasn't they... national at that point. It was only in five states. Oh. It was very small. McGladry. It was, RS, it was McGladry. It's now RSM. 
Glatter was in five states, you know, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, uh, Wisconsin, and someplace else. And um, so when I started with them out of school in Notre Dame, I thought, well, I'll, if I stay with the firm, I'll grow and I'll get transferred to, you know, Cedar Rapids or Des Moines or some goofy thing. And uh, and then all of a sudden, and I, I started with them in 72, and in 77, um, McGladry jumped to California to have offices for a publicly uh, held client that moved their headquarters to California, so they had to be in California to serve that client. And um, they needed uh, a tax guy. They needed a tax partner there. So I, I got the nod. I got the promotion to partner and, and the nod to move to California. And that just um, sort of opened everything up. You know, it was just a totally different world than I'd been exposed to in the Midwest. You know, and uh, and then that experience, that exposure to people, that I, uh, different ideas, meeting the people I met up in Las Vegas that ultimately, that were clients that ultimately uh, I ended up uh, working with, that, that was a seminal event. And right around the same time, so there were kind of a number of things that sort of set a stage in a sense, because we moved to California in late 77. Um, our daughter was born in January of 78, and my dad died in May of 78. So um, it, all those things happened within six months, just a, a massive amount of change in a uh, short period of time. So you kind of, it's sort of, you learn how to bob and weave, I guess. Now, what about the opportunity that was attractive for you? Money. Make more money. Is that what it was? Well, you get a promotion to partner. That's what you want to do when you're when you're. Was a, that uh, contingent on on you making the move to California? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was part of the inducement to go to California. Yeah, because I was the first transfer to California in McGladry, uh, which had a bearing on a number of good things that happened to me uh, after I moved to California. But but that was the deal. They needed a, they needed a tax guy. I um, I was at the level where I could be conservator partner, and they said, "Okay, we need you out there." And, and uh, if you're willing to go, we'll uh, make you a, a partner at the same time. So that was a good financial inducement, definitely. And and that's what you aspire to when you're in a CPA firm. If you've got the ambition, you aspire to that partner role. And I aspired, so there you were. And then talk about what brought you to Vegas. You started to touch on it a little bit. Well, and, and we've had some conversations about this uh, in the time we've worked together. I got a lot of experience and a lot of exposure uh, in uh, L.A. I, because I was the first transfer to California, I had a lot of visibility in, in the CPA firm. As the firm grew, we went to California, we went further uh, up in California, New York. We merged in various firms. We became a national firm after the period when I moved to California. And uh, in the early 80s, because I had such high visibility, not because I was the smartest guy around, but just, you know, right place, right time. I got the chance to uh, uh, be elected to the National Board of Directors, which is about, I don't know, 15 people, for a uh, four-year term. Uh, and that firm, the board is what makes the ultimate decisions on um, income allocations, new partners, you know, whatever, like a typical board of directors in a large company. So I was very lucky in my early 30s to get on that board and see how the inner workings of a national CPA firm worked um, and how decisions were made, 
what you know what I could uh, aspire to over the next 20, 30 years as a partner because I'm in my early 30s. Most of the people on the board with me were in their uh, 50s. Uh, yeah, most of them were in the 50s. The management was in their 50s. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, I don't know if that's, is that what I want to do? I um, had been uh, in the middle of a, an executive MBA at Claremont McKenna, uh, which is a, a very good institution out in Claremont, California. And I was taking some various courses. One of them was a strategic planning course. And so I sat down and, as you would expect, I did a really half-assed personal strategic plan for myself that I wanted to have as a template for you know what I was looking to do. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm looking around at, at this and I'm seeing all the, the, the only place that I could aspire to go in McGladry would have been to go for um, managing partner. That's what I would in, that's where you got to go. You can't go laterally into more businesses and different things. You can spread yourself within the firm in terms of different areas of, of, of practice, but fundamentally, if you're going to if you're going to grow in the firm, you go up. Well, when you go up, um, there's a lot of cost to that. I was already at that point in time out of out of town one week a month. I had a, I had a five year six year old daughter. I'm out of town a week a month as it is going to the Midwest or New York or Europe or wherever it is, depending on what I'm involved in. And I'm looking at these guys, the managing partner and the other people, administrative partners running the firm, and they're all in their fifties, and they're on the road no less than three weeks a month. It's like, whoa, you know, is that really, really what I want? Um, I'm just not sure. So I started, you know, thinking about whether this was really my long-term career. Is this what I really wanted? And uh, there's kind of like velvet health, uh, handcuffs to this if you're not careful. And so anyway, I worked with clients up here that uh, had higher level tax issues and things. And so I... Um, Got to know them pretty well, and uh, a bunch of them had um, had uh, land that they'd bought in Vegas, and they wanted to start doing real estate development. And they thought, well, why don't we put our own development company together and do real estate development as a group? And uh, but we need somebody to ramrod it day to day because we're all running our businesses. We don't have time to do it, nor the expertise. So I came up, and they uh, offered me that uh, opportunity to become a partner in that development company, and I did. And, started down uh, down that path but it was motivated by a lot of things um, it was really looking at you know I'm 35 years old and you know where do I want to spend the next 30 years and it's not being on the road three three weeks a month flying all over um, uh, being a partner in McGladdery just just wasn't in the, in the cards for me not that that's bad some people love that stuff I just I just didn't but that's why I made the comment that that move to California was mm-hmm. sort of the epicenter of your, your question because, as you know, when I came here, we started a development company. Our partner, Carol, worked um, in, in, in the development company. We hired her to uh, sort of head up the office but also to um, do the property management for the properties that we built and retained and owned and, and uh, rented out. So uh, she became our uh, property manager, and that's... That was uh, where I met her. Um, One of my partners in my CPA firm, Ronnie Sloan, worked in that same company as really sort of an administrative staff, 
Girl Friday, answer the phone, all these things that, <laughs> that you can't politically uh, say these days. Um, but when I was looking at making a fundamental change in the culture of my CPA firm about 20 years ago, I was looking for an atypical uh, personality um, with executive skills to help me change the culture and, and formal structure of my CPA firm. And uh, I was able to get her to uh, agree to come into uh, Fair Anderson Langerman, and uh, she's now an, uh, a non-CPA equity partner, which we can do in, in Nevada, and has been part of a, the success we've had as being an atypical uh, CPA firm. So um, that that development company became a real so you, focal point. You, I want to kind of pin some things down here. You, <coughs> you came here. It was about the was it early eighties, mid eighties, eighty four, eighty four, to be the ramrodder of a development company. Was that development by five or a different yeah, company? So it's called development by five. Right. Acronym, because there were five of us. There were five of you. That we're makes that makes sense. Oh yeah. The acronym is DB five. And right. at what point in this uh, company's evolution did you hire Carol? Probably. A, let's see. We started in 84. Um, 85. And I remember this because my, Wife was pregnant with our son, who was born in October of 85. Carol was pregnant with her son, who was born, I think, in February of 86. And she disputes this to this day. But fundamentally, I think she came to work, I'm going to say, like August or September, and took about the last six weeks of the year, the months of December and January off, because she just had an abysmal pregnancy, she was sicker than a dog. So, you know. Uh, and she remembers it differently. Yeah, I think she remembers it differently. <laughs> but she was she was not there. Um, I said, where where'd she go? So uh, Now, were you she, a CPA as well alongside this development company? No, I, I mean, I maintained my certificate. I got licensed. But you're not practicing as an I was account. not practicing during that period. No, not at all. I was just bringing my expertise to it, but um, in how we structured things for tax purposes and things of that sort. But no, I wasn't acting as a CPA. And what were some of those early projects that you developed that somebody in Las Vegas might know? Well, what would they know? We did um, uh, a project at uh, Flamingo and Decatur, the northeast corner of Flamingo and Decatur. Shopping center. Shopping center there. Mm -hmm. We did uh, a project. that uh, Somehow we came up with the name of Wind River. It's over on Valley View, just uh, south of... um, Flamingo, and along the Flamingo Wash, we did that. We did that was that. a flex project. Uh, kind of, yeah, office warehouse flex type of project, 100, 150,000 feet. We did another one across the wash that was uh, um, about a hundred, another hundred fifty thousand feet. We did a small shopping center. We 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 did about four or five hundred thousand feet uh, before we hit um, that economic problem with the uh, savings and loan issues and things back in the late eighties. So this this development co- company is running from the mid '80s to the late '80s, yep. getting up to like '88, '89. The winds change with savings and loan, which doesn't bode well for development companies. Right. And then what happened? Well, I decided to go go to work. <laughs> now, actually, one of the things was I, um, I I like real estate development, but I I like it from the standpoint of the creative process of finding a piece of land, thinking where you're going to put there. How do you design it? How do you make it user-friendly? You know, put the deal together, uh, figure out how to make the pieces all fall together properly. The actual operation of 
managing the property, renting it. Not, there's, a, there's a lot of tedious to me type of stuff that I, I don't really enjoy that much. And so um, <clears throat> when the savings and loan thing came down and we had an SNL that had lent money to us that went under with the feds, and they called our loans and at, at exactly the wrong time, so we just had to kind of sell them and get the money and run. But it, it pretty much nixed our uh, development activities at that point. I, I realized I really, I really missed public accounting. I like the I missed the intellectual diversity of public accounting. Real estate development has diverse elements to it, but you know it's kind of like this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff, and it's a nerve-wracking business. Anybody who's been in real estate development guaranteed a twenty million dollar loan will tell you that. Particularly if you're doing that around nine eleven oh one, when everything went to hell in the handbasket. So that's an interesting experience. But uh, <laughs> but I missed the breadth. I miss the breadth of just that intellectual breadth of activity. So um, the Fair and Langerman in the firm name um, had left McGladry about the same time I did, went with another firm for a while, and we all got together and said, well, maybe we can do this ourselves. We've got a base that we'll start with. And so I went back into public accounting because then at that point I realized a, a partner in a CPA firm can control the conflicts of interest that you have if you have uh, clients who are also investors in your projects. National firms can't control those conflicts of interest. It just doesn't work. But in a small CPA firm, Mm. you know, we can work with clients that we uh, don't have a conflict of interest because we're not doing financial statements and things of that sort that would cause a problem. And they can be investors in projects, and that worked out really well for them and and for us to to do projects. So that that became the genesis of the... uh, uh, CPA firm in 88. Then Carol and I uh, did um, MDL in, uh, about a year later in 89 when the, when the uh, last elements of our development company more or less wound down. We looked at it and go, well, we got some properties. We can manage those and use that as a base to uh, start a company. And uh, Carol came up with a name. I thought we'd just call it Kurt's Place, but she didn't care for that. She thought that was just a little bit too arrogant. So uh, she came up with the name uh, MDL for Management Development and Leasing. That was so I get asked all the time, what does MDL stand for? Right. My brother, who was kind of a, an ironic guy, said that it was for more damn losses. More damn losses. More damn losses. <laughs> That's good. I get asked if, it's, uh, if my last name is in there, Mizrahi with the M. Oh, And I yeah. explain the story. Nope, it's when... The way Carol tells the story is when you guys decided to do this, she thought about, well, what is the company going to do? We're going to manage property. We're going to develop property and we're going to do leasing. Yep. Which, you know, fast forward many years later on the brokerage side of what we do, leasing is just one component. The other component is sales as well. So uh, way ahead of its time to start out as an acronym. Now everyone is an acronym. Usually it's a few names put together, but then they, bring it down to, to acronyms. In our, in our space, it was C.B. Richard Ellis, now it's C.B.R.E. Mm-hmm. Jones Lang LaSalle is J.L.L., Cushman Wakefield is C.W. Yep. MDL is way ahead of its time. I just want to point that out. Well, it's all Carol. She's the one who did it. So you um, evolved out of the uh, development business when the winds changed with the savings and loan issues. You went back into public accounting, starting a CPA firm with a couple of partners. You also... And I kept developing. 
but on a different basis. Okay. So you started a, a company with Carol, which was a management and, and brokerage company. And the, and you so talk more about that. You kept developing just differently. And when, when did you start developing again? Uh, we actually started de- developing pretty much right away in the sense that one of our properties was financed by an SNL that had uh, gone under. And um, we had a we had a troubled loan kind of a deal, so I took that property, reorganized the debt, and um, we and we rehabbed the property. So we raised money for that property, and uh, uh, we were able to pay off the loan on it on a discounted basis, and um, put another commercial loan on it, and redevelop the focus of the uh, of the property. And it turned out to be uh, we brought some um, a couple of uh, clients into it with us, and. Um, Sold it at a nice, uh, nice hefty profit about um, you know seven eight years later, so that was a, a redeveloped property. Then we uh, also developed um, office buildings. Fundamentally, we developed office buildings. Um, we did a couple at, at the Rainbow Curve. Uh, we did a, um, an office uh, project at Town Center and two fifteen and built buildings for sale. And but these were one offs. Just. We weren't in the business of being developers. We were doing episodic transactional opportunity development because uh, um, I didn't want to be in that business full time. But it, but it worked out very nicely, and it we had the quality control of uh, we did the development, um, we we handled the financial side, the tax side, um, we managed it, made sure it got leased up. And so it was a nice integrated approach with using just. Um, Independent companies that were coalesced as as uh, joint ventures, so to speak, in the in the activity. So MDL Group is trucking along, and in 2013, myself and Jared Katz came here, and we became partners with you and Carol. Yep. So I've I've told this story obviously a bunch of times since 2013. When people ask me about MDL and how all that happened, I want to ask you what is your version of that story? We schnookered you. It's that simple, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that what we did? Um, you know, the thing is that uh, I've, been, I've been working with guys my age uh, for 50 years. When I started in public accounting, it was 1971, actually, 71. And I was working with people in their 50s and 60s then, and then uh, in, back in Indiana. Then I was in, uh, in California when I moved out to California. Uh, working with people who had built businesses, gotten to an age in their 50s, 60s, and whatever, and they're looking around going, what am I going to do with this thing? What am I going to do? I got this business, but what am I going to do with it? You know, uh, uh, am I going to sell it? And then what would I do with myself? And Or, um, you know, uh, I don't have anybody to sell it to. All those kinds of problems. Succession planning, in other words. And so a big part of what I do, back to helping people figure out what do I want, big part of that is saying, okay, you're 55, 60 years. I just had this conversation yesterday with a guy. You know, you're 55, 60 years old. Where's this going? What do you want to do? Um, do you want to sell this? Do you want to bring in money to help you expand it? Um, you want to just work it until you die? You know, there's no right or wrong. What do you, you know, what do you want to do? What are your options? Let's talk about that and see, you know, whatever. So it's not like I wouldn't try to do the same thing for myself. Uh, and Carol, and so that was the genesis of it. I tell Carol this because she was starting to get older, but um, <laughs> she doesn't doesn't react well to that. But but we were getting to a point where we were uh, uh, 
thir- uh, that was in 13. Yeah, so I yeah. was in my 60s. Carol was still a spry 50-something. So, um, uh, but the time was right to look at how do we take MDL to that next level? Because MDL was a management company, but the brokerage was a, an afterthought. It was really run as an adjunct uh, and produced profit for us and whatever, but it was not a driver. It was like a passive uh, add-on activity that we made money on, but it wasn't really expanding MDL group per se. We were known as a management company, and that's it. And so we were looking at that and thinking, okay, now the company's got to go in this divided path. We're, we're well-known for property management, but we've got to get brokerage as a, a, a vital element of the business. We've got to get that element into the business because that's where you get uh, acquisitions, dispositions, uh, management comes from that. It's just, and then you can handle that integrated process of, I just bought a property. Can you help me lease it? Can you help me manage it? Can you help me profile for sale? Can you help me sell it? So that's what we were looking for. And um, trying to, we, we were looking for experienced brokers that knew the market, that were known in the market, and respected in the market. And Carol had worked with you and Jared um, in various organizations and, and some transactions and things over the years. And, and so she, uh, she said, well, you, well, we really ought to talk to these two guys. And I think at that point in time, NAI was starting to do, it was starting to morph, if I remember right. So her thought was that we should sit down with you guys and, and um, talk about maybe the timing was right to bring in and ideally, we'd want to bring in people who were uh, capable of learning the business and growing to partners. Growing to partners. Ideally, if we could find people who were actually capable of being partners at the time, that was even better. Because then we could skip a lot of that. Well, you got to learn this, you got to learn that, you know, we got to do this, that, and whatever. We could kind of get to the point of, you know, the business, you know, that. Uh, You've had some experience in operating businesses and different things, as well as real estate brokerage. And uh, so um, if you come in as a partner, we can sort of jumpstart the transition process from the very beginning. Uh, And that was um, what I thought was attractive in the conversations with you and Jared, you know, based on Carol's uh, perception of you guys, that you had that that, uh, background and skill set. Uh, but we were looking for, and this was the hard part, and your brokers out there listening to this, don't take uh, umbrage at it, but I'm talking about you. Most real estate brokers are very independent, but they're not really business people. They don't think like business people. They think transactionally. Um, They're not good at delegating, supervising, and managing because it's just not what they do well. And, uh, and that's why they do what they do, and they do an excellent job of it. But we need something beyond that. for Because we had to run MDL as a business, and we need to bring in uh, potential partners or partners who had the ability and the desire to be business people, not just brokers. Because we didn't want two partners coming in and just running roughshod. Well, we'll get this business spinning up, and we'll get this brokerage going and go hell bent for leather on that side of the house, so to speak. 
but just more or less not pay attention to the property management. You know, and most brokers, that's what they would do. But uh, but a business person would look at that and go, well, let's see if we can spin up that brokerage side, but let's see what we can do about integrating the brokerage side with property management and that we cross-feed each other and we're, we're doing all the right things and we create a bigger uh, name recognition to market and all that. And you guys had that uh, capability. Ergo, the, the point that, that I made to you guys because you were being romanced by uh, another bunch of other houses because of your you know, reputations, you know, it really just came down to, you, know, you got to make up your mind. It's up to you. Do you want the platform, the big name, or do you want the deal? Because the deal is a business deal. It's not a platform. It's creating your own platform uh, through making a business different and growing it and expanding it. Well, and like doing what you're doing here. Uh, doing these kinds of things. So um, I, I think that that was the, the thing that we were looking for back in 2013. And, uh, and, I'm, I'm, and I always tell people candidly, <clears throat> you guys had no idea who I was. You knew Carol, but it's like this guy's, who the hell is this guy? First of all, he's a CPA. What the hell is he doing in real estate? Because, you know, whatever, this doesn't make any, any sense. Um, in that sense, and you know, you you can't trust accountants; they're penny pinchers and bean counters and all that stuff. So I'm sure there were a lot of, uh, shall we say, candid conversations between you and Hyam and your wives about we know her, but this guy, I don't know about him. We're not sure about that, uh, but we got through it. We got through it, and um, what we were looking for, um, we found. And I think what you guys may not have known you were looking for, you found, you know. Um, so it's a great deal. It's been going for nine years and still kicking. That's right. I, I lost count how many times you said partnerships in that, but I was keeping track of how many partnerships you've had. Let's see if we can go over them. You became a partner at McGladry. I don't know if we count that or not in the context of this but you uh, formed a partnership with four other developers for DB5. Yeah. The you bottom line is I did do this when you <laughs> asked me this. I, and I'm not counting the associated partnerships like with a, like, like single well, entities. Yeah, stuff yeah. like that, or, or companies we formed to do our real estate developments because yeah. that was really just part of the, the deal. I think, I, I think when I counted it up, I had something like um, 23, 23 different distinct business partnerships with various people. Sometimes there was overlap, mm -hmm. you know, of, of certain people because Carol and I were partners in MDL, but she was also a, a partner in the uh, development activity as well. She, she was involved in that. So I think it's like 23. Now, if you go and look in the real world, I've got clients that 23 is like, you know, a couple of months work. That's all. I mean, it's just like they're flying everywhere. Um, but these were, separate distinct this isn't like you're putting equity in a deal and you're a silent partner and it's like no, no, uh, no. this is you are a, a working partner within these 23 partnerships well i like to think i was working there could be a dispute about that but yes i was bringing to bear whatever i could bring to bear yes but but these were all different people different personalities quite frankly some of them worked um a num two-thirds of them worked and a third of them didn't and the ones that didn't work Usually turned out to be not just not that it was a bad idea. I, I do have a couple of those bad idea things because um, you get that that does happen. But it was people. Um, the partners didn't turn out to be who I thought they were. 
you know, and sometimes you make mistakes. So, but the bulk of them have been successful and and uh, and good people, and it was it was a good deal. So I was kind of going through DB five, FAL, MDL. Uh, you brought Ronnie into FAL later. Uh, I know Triple Crown with your brother. Yeah, I believe was, that we was one of them. Plus. Spirits Plus, a liquor store. Yep. What other What other businesses? Oh, there was a real. There was a um, plumbing, or there was a um, mechanical parts uh, distributorship in California. There was a uh, take and bake pizza business. We were way ahead of our time <laughs> for that one. Um, there was a uh, company that provided uh, uh, cutting edge uh, services. Physical services for um, autistic uh, individuals. Um, see, I didn't bring the list with me, so that's all right. But it, there were just there, there were a dis- the point is it was not all in one industry. It was a bunch of different. Um, I was the founder of Service First Bank. You know that was a great way to spend some money, um, <laughs> but it was a great experience. Um, that we were the biggest. Um, Community Bank ever formed in Nevada. We had Kenny Gwynn as our chairman. And we came on just in time for the 2008 debacle in, in real estate. But it was with a bunch of really good guys. Really good guys that uh, Terry uh, Terry Wright and Monty Miller and, and Kenny Gwynn and just a lot of I, I went into it because of the people. I just wanted to have an opportunity to, to, to mm-hmm. meet them. And um, we went public and I had the experience of being public and all that details, so you know, it's just. Um, but it was the people. It was the people, and uh, so I, I, I introduce you as a CPA by day, serial entrepreneur by night, and that's why. Well, and I think that as you saw from the um, the psychological test that we that we use the the multiple psychological tests that we actually use to uh, hire people, but for us when we coalesced as a partnership group we looked at the our psychological profiles and you know would they mesh would they great where were they great things of that sort what um when i got exposed to that profile back actually 20 years ago probably what i didn't know in at that time 30 years of public accounting was i wasn't supposed to be an accountant i'm not psychologically uh suited to being an accountant i hate paperwork i hate detail I don't have a computer in my office. Um, and and uh, when the guy did, the, you know the story, but when when Mark did my, my profile, he looks at it and he goes, okay, well, Fair Anderson Langerman Law Firm, because this guy's a litigator, he's a trial lawyer, he's got all the uh, characteristics of a trial lawyer, he's got a complete pain in the ass. And so um, that makes all sorts of sense. And then he finds out from Ron that we're a CPA firm and he couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. He just could not figure that out. And um, um, I use that as an object lesson with a lot of young people I talk with. I just had this conversation with a young, uh, young guy a couple of um, weeks ago that uh, uh, I was fortunate. I, um, I had lawyers all over the place. My dad was a trial lawyer, which is kind of like being raised by wolves. As I've seen. <laughs> I had lawyers everywhere. You know, Christmas, uh, Christmas, holidays was kind of like a bar association meeting. But um, um, I purposely did not want to be a lawyer because I didn't like the negative elements of, of law. It's, it's just a very negative business. Always problems, always suing somebody, always mad at somebody. I didn't like that. But what I didn't realize is I had those traits, those advocacy traits, those 
you know, I can explain anything trade that, you know, that I can bullshit anybody trade, whatever the hell it is. And um, uh, that, that is what drives most entrepreneurs is that thing, the intellectual curiosity. I want to try this. I want to try that, that uh, whatever. I, I'll try it. I can, I can make anything work. Well, maybe. Um, that, that was that psychological trait. So it just led to this, this thing of, again, it wasn't really to make money. It was to just be involved in something that I found intriguing. And fortunately for me, I think when I counted it up, I think it was two-thirds of them were successful. But, uh, you know, a third of them weren't. and cost me a little bit of money here and there. So, you know, but um, it exposes you so much. And it's very good for what I do with clients because I have that exposure. I have that breadth and depth of exposure. So when they talk about, I don't know whether I want to go into debt for 20 million bucks, I can tell them I've been there. I'll tell you the pros and cons of it, you know. Um, uh, getting them to, I don't think people are used to hearing an accountant say, make your decision based on what you want and what your life will be like after that decision, not based on whether it makes you money or not. Because the best decision may be the one that doesn't make you a lot of money, but makes you happy, makes you sleep at night, all that kind of stuff. So that comes from breadth of experience too. So let's shift into the takeaways portion of this. These are some specific takeaways that I've learned from you over the years and a great segue. You know, when we sat down, you talked about, uh, we do these personality assessments and we talked about how we're going to feel about this now and after and those kinds of things. I'm talking about when we sat down to decide, uh, that we're going to be partners and how we're going to be partners. And then you bring this guy in and, and the framing of this meeting was, all partnerships are doomed to failure. <laughs> Ed. Yeah. So we're talking about a guy named Ed Lubbers who's yeah. been, uh, he's an attorney, was an attorney in this community. who's actually NAOP chapter president in 1999, which now oh. years later, I am the 2022 chapter president. So yeah. I share that with Ed now. He's pa- he passed away a few years ago. Yep. But that was as an attorney setting up a partnership, setting up the, the prenup, so to speak, the operating agreement. His premise that he would advise clients, both sides, is all partnerships are doomed to failure. This will fail. This will blow up. You will be at each other's throats. Let's go to that moment and talk about how do we want to behave. And that's what we're going to put in this document. Yep. Yeah. Very sage advice. I typically didn't follow it with him, but, but I, I actually I did. But, but no, I think he was right. And that's part of the reason I didn't become a lawyer is because you have to look at the world that way. That's kind of a tough way to look at the world. So how have you used this or how has this either served you or, like you said, maybe ignored it and it, it worked out or well, didn't? Well, I'm, I'm too well-trained and too seasoned to not ignore it. Um, but I've really learned the lesson. I've actually learned that lesson by being in partnership in business with people that, in, as I later found out, I probably didn't really like and didn't want to be in business with. And so I, I made that mistake. And so the partnership was doomed to failure because it was the people. So what it really forces me to look at is, and, and I talk with this to, to clients, is it's the ideas don't work if the people aren't the right people. You got to get the right people. A great idea with a bad group of people trying to execute it ain't going to happen. It just isn't going to happen. And it also gets back to, I, I, I uh, gave a, uh, a presentation to this uh, Vistage 
subgroup. I can't think of what it's called. It's but we have one of our people's and one of my people at FALs, and, and, and it's uh, employees, uh, management employees on the rise within organizations. And uh, one of the uh, I was giving them my litany of horrors of what not to do based on my experience. And one of them asked, said, uh, "What um, what do you?" give is the, the most important advice to somebody who wants to start their, their own business. And I, and I told him, you need to find somebody who thinks exactly opposite to the way you think. Now, whether that's a partner because you need a partner in the business or it's an advisor who comes in and just keeps smacking you on the side of the head and says, what are you thinking? But you need somebody who thinks totally differently than you do to be a, so you get the synthesis of different viewpoints to come to good decisions. And, you know, Carol, as you well know, Carol and I are diametrically opposed, absolutely diametrically opposed um, in, in how we see the world. And that's been the secret of uh, our success is because we know that we make decisions uh, and we're careful that we always uh, respect each other's opinion and we, we uh, uh, you know, factor that into our decision-making process. And being a, a well-trained male, I always had the fallback that when Carol and I reached a, something that we just couldn't agree on, I just said, okay, it's yours. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Well-trained male. I make fun of that, but I do that. I've got some uh, men partners I do the same thing like that with. Sometimes you just have to look at and go, how important is it really? And, and what I told them is, I mean, I can't imagine... Being in business that I, with people I don't like. That's the worst thing I can think of. What kind of an existence is that to go in day in and day out and be around a pe- bunch of people you don't like? You might respect them, but you don't like them. That's not a great way to live. You know, that's just not, not for me. So the idea of, um, of all partnerships are doomed to failure is predicated on that personal relationship issue that is so often not dealt with up front. People get together for the wrong reasons. Here's another takeaway from you. So I'm, uh, we're, we're new into our partnership. We're starting to work together at MDL Group. I'm, uh, I've been licensed for nine years, but I'm still, I would say, relatively, I'm going to say young, not from an age standpoint, but young, young in the business. But everything I learned up to that point is if you have an opportunity to take a listing, you should take it. Because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to put your sign on it. Maybe someone will drive by and call you if they don't need this building. It's a lead for another building. It's an opportunity. And you said, listings are not opportunities. They are responsibilities. Do you remember that? Yep. I believe that. Talk about why you see them as a responsibility and not an opportunity and why brokers should see it that way too, from your opinion. Well, and this kind of goes back to my core belief of what MDL Group is. It's a professional service organization. We're bringing to bear knowledge and experience that our clients don't have or don't have in certain areas that we provide to them. So we're professionals. Our job is to look out for them. Now, so that's no different than operating as a CPA, a doctor, a lawyer. The point of the exercise is the client not you, the client. What do they need? Are you the right person to give it to them? And if so, if you tell them you're going to do it, you do it. So if you use that professional service 
definition for what we do here at MDL Group, then it's just de rigueur. It just goes with the deal. If you're going to take an, if you're taking a listing, you have a responsibility to that person to perform. They're looking to you to lease it or sell it or do whatever the hell it is. It's a lot of money in their in their world. You can't just blithely walk along and ignore them um, until somebody just you know happens to come by and says, "I want to buy that property or something." You have to work it. You have a responsibility to do that. You know, the other thing in the in the run up to getting a listing, this you know when you're in our seat, not necessarily from the consumer side. Someone calls and says, I, I'd like to sell my building and talk to you about my building. Now we have a process that we go through from that conversation to yes, we'll take the listing and we'll you know, we're signing a fiduciary contract and all that stuff. We look at the property, its characteristics. You know, what what drives value? What might not drive value? How does that property positioned against the competitive set? We come up with uh, properties like it that have sold, properties like it that are for sale. That creates a goalpost of values. We bring that back to the client and say, okay, based on your motivations, there's going to be a range on the low side to the high side. Depends on how the market's moving. Is it a downward market? Is it an upward market? In an upward market, for example, maybe we go outside the goalpost a little bit. Mm-hmm. If there isn't much available like it and there is high demand or vice versa. And sometimes you go through that process and we present all that information to the client. This actually happened last week. You know, We believe the property is worth, let's just say, 300 a foot. And the client says, I appreciate everything you put together. I want 450 a foot. My old way of thinking was, let's take the listing. It's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Market share, sign, all that. This way of thinking, it's no, once I sign that listing, I have a responsibility to perform for what we talked about, whether I disagree with you or not. Now, I, this, I disagree. I, can't, I don't believe that that property is worth 450 or that anybody would pay 450 In my professional opinion, I can't think of a scenario why somebody would pay that. Mm-hmm. There's not like an assembly or there's no reason. Sometimes there are. Sure. Right? But not in this. So yeah. we declined it. We said, you know what? We don't believe we can get you that price. If that's what you're stuck on, no problem. We, we offered a couple of other ways to get there, but at the end of the day, that's what they wanted. And because of that, again, if we sign that listing agreement, it's our responsibility, mm-hmm. not an opportunity. No, and, and, and um, that's if, if, if it's something that we can't do, maybe we'd love to be able to take it on, but for whatever reason, we don't have um, somebody who can take on that listing or... Um, something's going on, whatever it is, then we've got a responsibility to maybe turn down an opportunity that would actually, we're fully uh, comfortable that we could, um, that everything's right with that listing, but we're not the right ones because we don't, we can't put the time to it that it deserves. Sometimes you have to say that um, because that's being a professional. Professional looks out for the client, not themselves. I mean, it's not like we're, it's not like we're Buddhist monks and, you know, we don't worry about money. Don't get me wrong. But you got to do the right thing. It's doing the right thing by the client. So here's another one. I think it was six years ago, maybe. Uh, we were sitting down as four partners would at the end of the years, calculating, okay, here's how much profit we have. What do we do with the profit? And we were contemplating a, a sort of a bonus incentive for, for the team, the employees. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm a New business owner. I mean, I've got some experience, but I'm a new business owner. It's really the first time I sat down to ever think about what does a business owner do with their profits when they're contemplating a bonus to their employees. And my rationale, which I thought was brilliant, by the way, 
is you say, okay, here's how much profits we have. Here's how much we should take. And whatever we're not going to take as, as owners, we give that in bonus. And you said that is exactly the wrong way to look at it. Uh, the, you, what you said that day stuck with me is I don't believe in making a profit off the backs of your employees. Right. Right. We're the owners. We get the benefit of the upside. If we can create something that's really a great organization, whatever, we're the ones who own it that maybe can um, sell it and gain benefit from that, from what we created. Or if there's really extraordinary profits that we can make even after we've paid our employees very, very well for their efforts and what they've done, we still benefit. So it, it's like you, you, you've got to, if you want, pe- people have to be paid fairly for the value they create in helping us run this business first. Sometimes there's not enough money left after you do that to pay yourself extra money. But, you know, if you do it right, next year maybe you'll be able to. It's, it, but it's just, I just, that's what I've And again, it was like, flip the thinking around. You've got profit. You, first you take that profit, shore up the value that was created by your people, and whatever is left over, that's for you to take. Yeah. And that's, that's what we did. A couple phrases that you're known for, both at MDL and profane. at FAL, certainly being profane or lively, I would say. Um, you're known for asking why not or why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And you're known for saying, I've been thinking. <laughs> Let's start with the first one. Why is, why is asking that in, a, you know, in, in the decision-making process? Why is asking someone... Why not, or why wouldn't you do that so powerful? Well, think about it this way. Human nature is what it is. And you have to remember, I'm in a profession um, of, account- of accountants who are a classic example of this. People resist change. If you look at the dynamics of most decision-making in business or family life, whatever, there is a potential change. And what we do is we make that change justify itself. We make status quo uh, becomes assumed the change has to justify itself as change. And so when you start talking about why to change, you keep getting these things. Well, we'd have to do this. We'd have to do that. We'd have to do this, whatever. You know, the moon wouldn't be blue that day, whatever it is. And if you think about it, by and large, the things that people throw up as reasons not to do something really just have to do with what you would have to do if you made the change. They're implementation. They're not decision factors. They're implementation. When you flip it to why not, the dynamic shifts. Change is assumed until you tell me why I shouldn't change. So status quo doesn't have the preeminent position. So when I say we're going to change, we're going to do this, tell me why we shouldn't do it. By and large, what comes out of people's mouths uh, are all those things that when you get right down to it, those are the things you have to do to make the change effective and successful. They're not reasons to not do it. They're things you have to contend with to do it. And everybody looks at change from their standpoint. I'd have to do this. I'd have to do that. Oh, my God, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to start uh, wearing brown socks, whatever it is. So, so that, that change to why not totally, totally changes the conversation. And there are times, I mean, sometimes you sit there and you go, why not? And somebody comes up with a big, oh, yeah, that one is a why not. And then, but, but it may 
that that why not might be a timing issue. Mm-hmm. Why not today? But if we wait a couple of years, yeah, yeah. So so you get better information that way too. But I, I'm being a, a change junkie as I am. I'm wired that way. I just can't stand to sit in rooms. This is one of the things that used to drive me crazy at the uh, McLadry board meetings. Hopefully nobody's listening to this. But I'd sit there, and we'd be talking about things, and people would drone on and on about, well, but we'd have to do this, and we'd have to do that, and, you know, oh, my God, you know, it might snow that day or something. I'm really knocking my profession, aren't I? But it was terrible. <laughs> it was just, I'd just sit there and go. I would say that's a lot of boards it's sometimes. A board. It's a lot of boards, yeah. not just accountants. But it was just like, come on, come on. Let's let's think about this and, and be uh, more proactive than this. This is... This is just awful. And the difficulty is when you're running businesses, particularly, you've got people's lives at stake at this. This goes back to uh, a listing is not an opportunity. It's a responsibility. When you own a business, uh, owning a business is not uh, an opportunity. It's a responsibility. Everybody that comes in that gets a paycheck from you, no matter when they leave or if they leave or whatever, they're counting on you to pay them. So that means they're counting on you to be able to run that business successfully and uh, endure a lot of a lot of bad things so that they know with certainty they're going to get their paycheck. So that's not even having anything to do with, you know, you don't uh, make uh, profit off the backs of your employees. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the promise you made to your employees that come hell or high water, you're going to get paid. And I've had that experience that, you know, there have been plenty of times in my experience that I couldn't get paid because it took everything we had to pay our employees. And then I just had to wait to get paid because it was my responsibility to those employees. That's that's a big deal of that. So that why not is a big part of that because that why not is what you use to be sure the business is always vital, always changing, always thinking about new things uh, because that vitality is what provides uh, certainty to the employees and opportunity to the employees. They they can have upward mobility, you know. So it's um, uh, it's not like an enlightened search for truth or a religious uh, experience, but it's 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 an important human experience that you know if you're going to take on that uh, if you're going to do that, you got people you have to answer to. How about I've been thinking? Well, that's that. <laughs> That goes back to my wiring that, as I didn't find out until years later, is not meant to be that. I'm not wired like a like an accountant. I um, I just I I like change. I just uh, I think change is good. So I'm I'm always just thinking about things, and I have that my process. And I think you said this kind of works for you too. I, I don't go into a darkened room and light incense and think about the future to, to come up with uh, ideas uh, or what have you. What happens is I just kind of go around and it never leaves me. You just I think about stuff. It just sort of rumbles around in there in a ragtag kind of a way. And I could be driving or I could be watching a TV show. I could be reading a book. I could be talking to my kids. I don't know. Next thing you know, something pops. I'm going, oh, oh. Why didn't we think about that or something like that? So the the joke over at FAL, now at MDL, is if, if Ferry Anderson is, I would walk in 
And I'd walk into somebody's office and I would go, you know, I've been thinking, I've been thinking. And they'd just go, oh, God, no. What's he, what's he going to do now? So <laughs> over time, I tempered that a little bit because uh, uh, sometimes I get a little adamant about what I was thinking about, but I, I don't do that. Here's one you surprised me with. I think we're talking about uh, work-life balance, this whole concept of work-life balance. We weren't calling it that in the conversation, but all of a sudden you said, oh, that's the rule of eights. Yeah. You remember three the, eights, the rule of three eights? The rule of three eights. Right. Talk about that. Well, first of all, it kind of goes, I didn't, when I did my own professional, when I did my own strategic plan in 1984, January 15th, 1984. I know this because I actually still have it. Um, in my typical half-assed way, I didn't do a strategic plan. What I did was I listed out the characteristic and attributes of what I wanted my existence to be. And the key word there is existence. I didn't ask, I didn't talk about what I wanted my business activities to be and what my this and that, and whatever. It was like what did I want my existence to be like with intellectual challenge? Wanted to make a buck. Wanted to have time to travel. Wanted to be around my kids. Um, a number of different things. But they were all, there was, it was not a strategic plan in any way, shape, or form. So it was just this random, not, well, it wasn't random, but there was this, this listing of characteristics, of two pages of things. So, um, um, I realized, I, actually, it was after we'd start FAL, I guess. I don't know. Somewhere along the line, um, this work-life balance thing um, has been a discussion forever and ever and ever. And um, what I started talking with our staff people at FAL about when I would do um, uh, uh, mentoring sessions, things of that sort, is that um, think of your life holistically, uh, the money that you make, the uh, development of your professional career and your personal life, your family and, and personal pursuits. And think of them in three columns because I'm dealing with accountants, right? So I have numbers. <laughs> so think of three columns, zero to 10. 10 is the best. And that if you want a balance in your life of your activities, if you want a balanced existence, the best you're going to do is three-eighths. You'll make really good money but not as much as you could. You'll get really good professional development, but you may not be pushed as hard as you would be if you were working for McKinsey or some damn thing or whatever. And your personal life will be really good, but you're not going to be able to do everything every every time you want to do it for your family and things of that sort. It's 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 three eighths. You've got equilibrium at a very high level that makes for a very uh, balanced existence, with the understanding that at some points in time. Um, if you want to make your, if money all of a sudden, if you want money to go from eight to 10, okay, fine. Go take a job that takes your money from eight to 10. But what you're going to find is your money went up two, but your professional development and your personal life will go down by six because something has to give and it has to give exponentially. Yeah. So your professional development might go down by two because you're not getting quite the, uh, type of work you really like to do, but your personal life's going to drop like a stone to a four. That's what's going to happen because you, you can't have it all at 10. It just doesn't work that way. Life is not like that. Um, if you want to take your personal life to a 10, you're going to have the same effect on the other two. You take your personal life to a 10, 
your professional development is going to drop because you can't be around at work to engage in the activities that you really learn from as much. And your, and your money's going to drop because you're going to want to work 35 or 40 hours a week with, in professions. You don't, get, you don't learn and you don't uh, grow by working 40 hours a week. You're going to work 45, 50 hours a week. So if you do that, you want to take your family life to the 10, have at it, but you're going to drop your uh, money and uh, professional uh, development from eights to fives probably. It's just it's a mathematical verity. It's the way existence works. And, and, and the idea is that everybody can make more money. The question is, do you want to? You know, if you, if you um, but you can make a good living and live the way you want to live and all that stuff, do everything you want to do. But if you want to go to a 10, if that's that important to you, something else is going to have to, going to, have to give. It's just the way it works. I remember you saying the rule of eights. I don't remember the debt that specifically the three eights until you said it. And then the column thing. Yeah. Cause it's, eights. it's accountants. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Let's do a couple more over the last, has it been 50 years that you've been in business? Did I do the math right? 51. I graduated in May of 71. Yes. So it's been about 51 years. So can in the I last, fire, can I fire you in the last half century? <laughs> oh God, help us. <laughs> what would you say you got right? I married the right woman. Nothing would have happened had I married not married the right woman. In fact, when we had our 50th uh, anniversary deal, we, we, we took the family over to Jackson Hole, so we spent the week at Jackson Hole over at the Four Seasons over there. So we had a big unit, all the bedrooms in the unit and all that kind of stuff. So we had a family dinner on the uh, 15th, our anniversary. And at every one of these points that I was talking about, these uh, deflection points, inflection points, all Sue had to say was no. Eight and a half months pregnant, and I'm hauling her butt out to California for this promotion, and our baby was born two weeks later. I mean, she was literally on a plane, I think the 17th of December. I don't think they'd let you do that anymore, not medically. Now. No, not now they won't, but back in... Back in the olden days, uh, they did. It was just fine. She could have the baby on the plane back yeah, then. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, every major step I've ever taken, um, good, you know, um, moving here, leaving. I mean, when you're a partner in a CPA firm and you're 35 years old and you're making, you know, the kind of money that that uh, the, those guys make because they do all right, they do okay, and then to say I'm going to go up there and start all over again, all over again. Um, and some of that didn't work out. There were some problems, you know. So yeah, if I was married to the if I was married to the wrong woman, we wouldn't be talking. Last question: What advice would you give a bright young accountant, or a bright young broker, or a bright young professional in any industry on what they need to do to become more? Well, I think that our Philosophy. We, we don't have a we have a statement of philosophy for FAL. We don't have a mission statement. We don't have a vision statement. Drives all the consultants crazy, you know. We have a statement of philosophy, which is back to a statement of being. And one of the components of that statement of being is that we value knowledge, and we value knowledge on a broad basis. We don't narrow our knowledge. We we make sure we're well-informed 
broadly for the benefit of our clients. So um, if, uh, if I'm an accountant, I need to be reading up on business topics, not just tax and audit and accounting and things of that sort. I could be uh, reading on uh, business topics, management topics. Um, I, I need to know something about psychology. I need to know um, something about marketing. If I'm going to be, you know, I, the, the broad brush of topics, it, you know, the, it, it's very broad. If you get into a conversation with somebody about where they want to take their company or their life, there's a lot of different elements that come into this. And there's even times that I start to sound in some of the conversations, depending upon the direction it's going, when you're talking to somebody about their family. What are you going to do and how are you going to use your money and um, how are you going to create uh, sufficiency for your children but maybe not run the risk of them um, not being incented, things of that sort. You're dealing, you deal with people's money, whether you're a broker or a CPA, uh, in many ways, um, you're dealing. You're dealing with their lives. You know their lives. So the more educated you are, the more broadly educated you are, uh, the better you're going to be able to to um, perform that service, that professional service for that client. So seek knowledge. Don't limit yourself as to. You know, I don't have to go out and become a nuclear physicist, but you know, understand things. <laughs> Well, Kurt, this has been a lot of fun. It's always fun sitting down and talking to you. For me. <laughs> Great. Um, usually I ask people to leave a review. I'm going to ask you specifically not to leave a review, but thank you for sitting here with me and letting me torture you, Kurt. <laughs> thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.